You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Crystal. And I'm Nancy. And we are co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past, the podcast that delves into lesser-known histories and explores their relevance to modern issues. This week, Nancy and I are at the Extreme History Headquarters, and we're going to talk to Nancy about her research on the history of archaeology in Montana through the lens of New Deal archaeology. We're also going to talk about three men that we call the advocate, the avocationalist, and the academic. So I'm excited to do that. But first, I want to ask you, Nancy, how has your week been? Wow, yeah. Well, it is spring, sort of, in Montana. So it's been a little bit of back and forth with nice weather and not so nice weather. But I have been working on getting in um, new inventory into my shop. And I have been working on finishing off edits on the material we're actually going to be talking about today. So wearing both my academic hat and my business owner hat. And then also as a teacher, we're headed into, this is um, heading into finals week. So I'm teaching a course on anthropology of humans in the environment that's winding down into the final projects for the students, which I'm looking forward to. They all have great topics. Um, so yeah, that's that's been my week. How about you? What's been going on in your week, Crystal? Um, well, it's been a good week. We are gearing up for Give Big Gallatin Valley, which mm, is kind of a yearly right. fundraiser that happens once a year. And so it's happening at the beginning of May. And so we've been doing some videos, some shooting some video for that. So that's been good um, and fun. Um, we're working with John Olson, who's been uh, volunteering with us for a former student for and teaching years. assistant yeah, for me. Oh, yeah. I love John. That's great. He's I working know. with you. It yeah. is. It's wonderful. So, you know, um, once we get a volunteer or a staff member or someone who's interested in extreme history, they just never leave. They, they just don't. come back they don't. in different they forms. Just keep again coming back and again yeah. and again. <laughs> You're stuck with us. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And that's how it is with John. So it was it's so nice to work with him again. Right. He's been working been at Museum while. of the Rockies for a while. He he really did an amazing job with um their store yeah. there. Uh, yeah. the museum store. Their gift and shop, um right? yeah, the gift shop. Yeah. So so how nice though to be able to pull him back in. And is he back yeah. in school? He is, and he's working on um media 
and so digital media and so he's helping Fantastic. us with uh, some of our digital media needs well, which is keep we them have a lot in. yeah we have a lot of those so so we've been working on that and then we had a lecture last night um carrie clement who's been on the podcast that's right and yeah. she was talking about um the yellowtails yes right? she talked about robert yellowtail and horse herd restoration on the the crow reservation so that was fascinating and if anyone wants to see that lecture it is now on our extreme history project uh, facebook page oh i'm so glad so, you said that because yeah, the the, the video meeting about the school board um, yep, candidates yep. i was in on that and i couldn't do both so i'll go back and listen to that that's wonderful yeah i always love to listen to carrie and that's a great topic it is it really is um and i just wanted to let everyone know out there that we also have two facebook pages we actually have a, an extreme history facebook page but we also now have a dirt on the past facebook page yay so that's huge Huge. Yeah, so it's and very exciting. Soon we will have T-shirts too. Yes, so that's exciting. Yes, that's right. If you like that's our right. logo, you can you can get it. You can wear it. Maybe stickers too. Yeah, even. maybe. Who knows what kind of swag we'll come up exactly. with? Exactly. <laughs> but um, yeah, so check out the Dirt on the Past Facebook page. It's great, and we post all of our podcasts there. But we also post some just other topics that are related to the conversations we're having with folks. So check that out. Fantastic. So and so that's my week. It, it was you know is busy, a typical busy busiest, week, right? As usual, yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> I actually are. saw you midweek, which we don't usually get to I know. do. That, that was, was nice. Fun. Yeah, that was fun. So Nancy, today I have the honor of interviewing you, which is kind of exciting about your PhD research and a book chapter you have recently submitted for publication. Listeners might not be aware, but Nancy wears many hats. She teaches anthropology and American studies at Montana State University. She's working on a PhD, and she owns and operates a women's boutique called MOCA that's located in uh, in Bozeman on our historic Main Street. You are a Renaissance woman, Nancy, I have to oh, say. goodness, that's the first <laughs> time I've been called that, but thank you. I also do a podcast. And you so. do a podcast. <laughs> And you do a lot more than that as well. But but I wanted to talk specifically about this today because I think it's really significant that you have followed your passions, not only into the field of archaeology, but also into owning a shop, um, owning, you know, a a shop where you get to work with um, people every day and you get to follow your passion, a lot of people, and you get to follow your passion of fashion. Um, which I know you've had and always always have had. You help me with my fashion often. <laughs> so, you know, I think this is important for especially young women out there to understand and to hear about because, you know, you don't have to get boxed into just one thing. You don't have to get boxed into just one profession. You can venture out and do different things and wear these different hats. And I think you're a great example of that. I think I've been really inspired by other people I've seen who either they make a a major career change at some point in their lives, or they've just always done several things and haven't been afraid to take on something new. And I think there sometimes is that fear that you have that once you've invested and learned a whole uh, lot about one particular 
career and and pursued goals in that that you'd almost be starting over in something else and and I think more and more we're seeing people who are embracing that that flexibility and and finding that what you have learned in one career path really can help with the other so for me I think being at the university and teaching doing archaeology there has always been so exciting to me and I've it's allowed me to get to know my students outside the classroom when we go into the field and do those things and, and get involved in helping them in their next step, whether that's finding a job or um, going on to graduate school. And a lot of times we take time off in between. So just navigating that has been wonderful. And so I've always really wanted to be uh, part of the downtown community and the community beyond maybe just Bozeman. And that's where I've been very excited to join the board of the Extreme History Project and be involved as you moved downtown into this historic mm-hmm. building, this this brothel, this space. Historic brothel. Historic we, brothel. We always I always have to clarify yes, that. <laughs> yes. And have events down here. I, um, I think that it allows me to really combine things that I'm interested in. So former students come in the store. That's really fun. They don't think it's that strange to say, hey, I think I took a class from you. And I say, hey, yeah, you did. And I remember what grade you got. No, usually <laughs> they, they did well. But um, but it's been it's been very fun to bring in um, my family's love of travel, of experience, experiencing different art and fashion, other places, other perspectives. Um, it also allows me to work much more closely with my son and daughter who are 16 and 19 right now and their interests and their friends come in and they want to participate in the in the business and they can do so so much um more than they could with my field in archaeology they've come to visit me at sites and see that but my daughter really does buying for the store my son can help out in other ways with website design fashion doing a little remodeling so it's been really fun to feel like um, and my daughter and husband doing photography as well so all of it kind of is working together and it is surprising to me I think in some ways it's allowed me to to do more because I'm right around the corner from your offices yeah, now. Yeah, so you, that's been you fun. You get to pop in midweek. And <laughs> right. And we can yeah. sort of start to plan events now that um, right. things will be starting to open up again where yeah. my store and Extreme History can partner together on issues that are important to downtown around historic preservation and making it fun. And, and right. sometimes it's focused on women, but it doesn't have to be. Right. So thanks for asking that. It's been um, a way to bring my love of all aspects of culture sort of together, even though yeah. they might seem very disparate. It, it does somehow work. Yeah. So tell us, you named your store, you named your shop on Main Street, Mocha, yes. M-O-K-A. Can you tell me what that means? Yes, and it's on our website, mochamontana.com. I picked it. We were struggling to figure out a new name when we took over, and I have always loved teaching Anthropology 101, and one of the stories I tell is about big man systems in New Guinea. One tribe in particular, the Kowalka, there's a movie we show called Onka's Big Mocha, and the Mocha is almost like a potlatch event that occurs every few years where he has to organize and and recall in sort of debts from all his other tribesmen. He's not a, a leader in the sense that he can force people what to do, but he has to be persuasive. And he gathers in and calls in all these debts from ways he's loaned people pigs and other things before. And then you hold this gigantic feast and you give it all away to another tribe. 
And um, you gain your status through your generosity. And then you, you sort of also shamed then the receiving tribe. And a couple of years later, they're obligated to then give back. So it's it's almost a way of investing. Um, but I, I love to, to say that at the end of it, you know, you wouldn't know who the big man was if you dug up his grave. He wouldn't have mm-hmm. accumulated wealth for himself. It's sort of a way of amassing wealth, but then giving it away. And what you accrue is is status through your generosity. You're not accruing, accruing material things. So I loved teaching about that. It's such a, a different way of doing things than we have in our modern society. And I liked the idea that sort of gift giving was the basis of it um, and that you're giving away your possessions. So thought it would make a good name. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it really is a good name. And I love that it ties into your love of anthropology as well. So, so like I said, we're going to talk a little bit about your PhD research, um, because along with the shop and um, teaching, you're also working on your PhD. And then you have just recently submitted a chapter for publication. And so you let me read that chapter. And so a lot of these questions that I have today kind of come out of that. But it really focuses on the early history of archaeology in Montana, specifically the men and women who first took up this work here in our state, before it was really even considered a profession. The time frame we're going to be talking about today is kind of the late 1930s to early 1940s. So can you give us a quick, quick synopsis of when working as a professional archaeologist became a thing, <laughs> not just in Montana, but kind of nationally in the United States? Yeah, and it's so interesting because when you go into the field of archaeology, you just think of it as, oh, I'm going into the field of archaeology, I'm getting an academic degree, and then I will get a job either in academia teaching it or in cultural resource management with a private firm or perhaps at a national or state park. And there was a a time not that long ago before any of those things were really possible. So the field of archaeology, especially in the United States, um, wasn't a separate designated field where you could get a degree really into the very, very end of uh, the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. And even then, it it took um, much more into the 1920s and 30s before we started seeing people getting degrees. So before then, people would go to universities and they would be scientists that were more general, sort of naturalists. Maybe they'd have a specialty in geology or entomology. And all of these people would sometimes come across archaeological sites, become interested, and then develop techniques, learn some techniques, and and things like that. So, for example, the earliest excavation recorded that we have in the United States is Thomas Jefferson, who excavated one of the mounds on his own property. Um, And then he wrote it up in notes on the state of Virginia, and he excavated a a burial mound um, constructed by Native Americans. And he demonstrated that there was stratigraphy in there and that this was constructed and that this was something that the ancestors of indigenous inhabitants of that region made. Um, His very good points that he made were then lost and a myth about mound builders developed after. But this idea that you could be a professional archaeologist then spread unevenly, really started much more in the East Coast universities that are older. Um, Little by little, you had it moving in the South and the Midwest, and it took a bit longer to reach where we are up in the northern plains in Montana. So the Southwest, because 
the Puebloan people and then the ruins, the Pueblo ruins that are there um, are so prominent on the landscape and were explored so early from the earliest explorers in those regions, Euro explorers. Um, we know that we had multi-story structures in Chaco Canyon and, and different places, especially in Arizona and New Mexico. So we did have people interested in doing archaeology out west in that portion. But in Montana, we did not have any professional archaeologists until the very end of the 1940s. And that first person that was hired, Carling Maloof, in 1948, um, did not have his PhD. That's back when you can mm-hmm. get a job as a professor without having a PhD. You finish it in progress. Um, the same was was oh, okay. true of Bill Malloy, who ended up doing the archaeology in Montana, first of all. Mm-hmm. So for understanding that history was really essential for me to understand what was going on throughout the United States in order to then figure out where Montana fit in that picture. And that's when I started to realize we in the Northern Plains kind of lagged behind developments in archaeology that were going on other places where you'd get a lot more amateur societies or you'd get um, county or state governments appointing some funds, having a museum. Um, So there was some states that had that infrastructure as you moved Midwest and West, um, but not not up where we were. Mm. Mm. So... So why is that in Montana? Why did it take so much longer in Montana to kind of have that professional presence here? And I I know that you talk a little bit about it in your article, and you were saying that um, a lot of anthropologists didn't consider Montana important archaeologically because they didn't think that people had lived in Montana all that long, which, boy, were they wrong. Boy, were they wrong, (laughs) as we well know now, yeah. So they felt that nomadic bison hunting people were a recent phenomenon made possible with the introduction of the horse in the 1700s. We now know, of course, that people have been living in Montana for over 12,000 years. But can you speak a little bit more to this? Right. It's so fascinating because we have the the Anzic boy who was found in the 60s and and recently that genome decoded. We know that is a 12,000-year-old skeleton. So doing this research while all of that was was coming back out again about the Anzic boy and even more, was was so interesting to me to go back and try to answer this question of why Montana seemed to lag behind. And, and my answer is um, just what you said. I think what I found in looking at what academics were doing and saying is that we had a lot of individuals come out to interview Plains Indians. So if we go back a bit into the 1860s and 70s, this was one of the last regions in the United States where you really were, we saw the U.S. government um, settling people onto reservations. So the 60s into the late 70s, 1860s into the late 1870s, we finally get these nomadic Plains tribes, many of them reliant on the horse at that point, to be confined to these reserves and through these treaties with the idea that that would create more peaceful conditions, allow other settlement. But the idea was that um, then you have this nostalgia almost immediately on the heels of that. So you have um, the Wild West shows with Buffalo Bill Cody that are popular from 1883 to 1907, creating this idea almost already that 
Plains Indians are the iconic Native American, and they are already a thing of the past. They're already gone. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that was something that had its height really only as a horse culture. And so when you look at um, eth- ethnographers, they were coming out as the this area was being settled, Wyoming, Colorado, Montana, the Dakotas, and they would be interviewing the Blackfeet, the Assiniboine, the Grovant, the Northern Cheyenne, and they would do these ethnographies thinking that they were preserving a lost and dying culture that was going away. They saw what was coming. These are on reservations. They can't continue their culture the way it was practiced before. And they felt that they were preserving people that were going to be assimilated in a culture that was no longer going to be distinguishable. So we know that's not true now, but you had anthropologists there, and then you had these Wild West shows. So you had these ideas kind Mm -hmm. of competing um, that people loved it and nostalgic for it, but there was no sense that there was a deep history. Um, there were no archaeologists coming out here, which is strange because when you had Lewis and Clark come through the region, they mentioned archaeological yeah, sites. Right. Okay, so this is really yeah. early 1800s, yeah, right? Yeah. 1804, 5, 6, whatever. They are traveling through and they're noting sites. And then even in Bozeman, we have um, when we have the establishment of Yellowstone National Park, we have Fort Ellis just outside of Bozeman. We have um, Colonels um, Brackett and Norris, who also record some um, bison kill sites. But I think the idea was still that the bison hunting culture was only made dependent once you had the horse. And you have mm-hmm. prominent anthropologists like Clark Whistler, who was the the anthropology curator at the American Museum of Natural History and himself a very well-known ethnographer um, on the Northern Plains, um, as was uh, um, Grinnell and, and several other folks. And they, their opinion was stated in print in anthropology journals that they felt that there was not a, a deep history there, that there mm-hmm. was not a deep past. So nobody was looking. Even though there were a couple of archaeological reports, those archaeologists weren't being they weren't trained yet because it was so early and so those fields didn't overlap at all so now we know um that we have this deep history one of the earliest oldest histories of people on the plains and to me it's such a fascinating story because the reason they thought you didn't have people living out here was because it's a very difficult climate and how could you possibly have made a living out here if you don't have agriculture and you have this uh, harsh, unpredictable, arid climate, cold climate in in much parts of the year, and that people only periodically came out to hunt. And how would they hunt if they didn't have horses? You know, mm-hmm. now we know they were able to do all of that um, way far back. And so it's it's really a remarkable story about indigenous occupation of the northern plains. And really, this is the longest period that that last, as Frederick Jackson Turner liked to say, that last yeah. closing of the right. frontier, right. this interior frontier. Yeah. And I think that is why we just didn't get any archaeologists until really we get to the part of my story that involves government funding and the mm-hmm. Works Progress Administration um, during the Depression years just trying to put people to work, you had local ranchers and people who lived here, wolfers, ranchers, cowboys, who owned land, homestead, and were like, yeah, there's archaeology here. Mm -hmm. They knew it. They saw it The amateurs knew it. The professionals really didn't, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's fascinating. And, you know, you probably think that 
um, the archaeology here is not as prominent as in the Southwest either. You know right. that with the pueblos and the you know um, ruins that you have there were just so magnificent, and so we have a, we had very different cultures here who did not leave that. Um, that impact, you know, in that way on our, on the land here. So it's interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the bias in among anthropologists yeah. was that if you were hunter-gatherers, if, if you were nomadic and you weren't agriculturalists, you didn't have settlements and mm-hmm. villages you lived in, that that was sort of an earlier stage in the evolution of human societies. Mm. So it was hard for them to really understand that you could have these very rich, amazing cultures. Yeah. Yet at the same time, we have this whole popular culture about Plains right. Indians. They're That's in all the earliest movies. They captured all the imagination. So not only do we have the Wild West shows, but as soon as you get into film and movies, photography, that is what everyone thinks of when they think of as an Indian. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of holding these two contradictory ideas almost at the same time. Um, uh, so it's a very interesting story, that early history. But you really don't get the archaeology until you start getting the local folks who live here on the ground um, who are trying to uh, settle as Euro-Americans this area, they're the ones who call the attention. Now, it's kind of a shame because clearly you had ethnographists talking to Blackfeet, Assiniboine, Crow, Cheyenne, all these folks, and they knew that there was a deep history and sites, but I don't think they were necessarily really heard, or that Mm -hmm. wasn't the focus of what the ethnographers were writing about. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, you tell the story of early archaeology in Montana in this chapter that I read, but also in your PhD research, through the lens of three men. And I love this because I can always better grasp or relate to a story when it has human components. And you and I have talked about this quite a bit, this idea of intertwining people or, or a person throughout a series of events so that when people are reading about it or learning about it, it's easier just to, to relate to it basically. And so you do this wonderfully in this chapter, but you tell the story through the lens of Oscar Lewis, who was the avocational archeologist, William Malloy, who was the academic, and then Melville Sayer, who was the advocate. Can you tell us a little a bit about these three colorful men and their roles yeah. establishing archaeology in Montana? Yeah, and um, I, I do love that all the history courses I had to take um, as part of my doctoral research in American studies allowed me to sort of have all these wonderful examples of narratives structured around individuals. And I think as archaeologists, we don't really get to do that or mm-hmm. we don't read as much of that. So it was it was fun to tell a story about archaeology and try to do it in this way. Um, I'll start with Melville Sayer. Um, all three men couldn't have been more different from each other. So H. Melville Sayer originally came from Ohio, and he had a master's degree in English. And he had a couple of jobs at different universities and then got hired at the Montana School of Mines in Butte, which is now Montana Tech. When we refer to it, it's still there. And so they were training people who were going into engineering and mining and things like that. He had a real interest in anthropology and archaeology. I think back in Ohio, he had had um, a couple of examples. And then in Wisconsin, when he taught, he got to know some uh, archaeologists there. So he went to a couple of meetings, and by the time he got out to Montana in 1933 and got hired, he was hired to teach introductory English and Mm -hmm. writing, 
But he very quickly realized um, there is nobody out here, nobody with a degree doing anything to do with archaeology. And right at that moment in the early 30s, people were discovering Folsom and Clovis, so these paleo-Indian parts. And there was a whole debate of when were the Americas first inhabited? Who were these first inhabitants? How far back did they go? Was it as far back as old world civilizations in, in Europe or these, these early settlements? So really trying to still piece together how the, this, these continents were inhabited was a big question. So he thought, well, who knows? Maybe we'll find early man in Montana. That's what they would call it then, early man, because yeah. it was just below these ice sheets. They knew enough about geology to know that. And nobody else is looking. So he would take his summers and drive around. And I don't know if he did it with modest funds from the Montana School of Mines or out of pocket. But he was able to, he just started driving around. He had a, a wife and a, and a young child at the time and just start talking to people, the local so he, ranchers, the farmers. Okay, yeah. so he talked to the ranchers, farmers, people who owned the land, who knew the land. Yes, and apparently oh, he's super well-spoken. He could sing and play piano. He's <laughs> dapper guy that was kind of just as much at home with anybody. And I, I the, from all of the anecdotal stories that I've read from people who knew him, he was clearly a likable guy and could move in circles academic circles, as well as just out with anybody he met um, uh, who would be working on the land or anything like that. So he started to compile information about archaeological sites, and then he would write up a report, and he would send it east. So just just these sites <laughs> that he came across during his summers. That he would ask yeah. people about, and yeah. then he'd say, could uh-huh. I go out and look at it? Yeah. And he'd do a little description. So he had no formal training whatsoever. But he would then write it up as that he did a survey, basically reconnaissance, mm-hmm. and he would send it back to American anthropologist and um, Carl Guth and other people. They'd, they'd publish it. This is what's going on in Montana. Huh. And that was back when, yeah, nobody else was doing it, and you didn't have to have a degree to legitimately explore the archaeology. Yeah. He had an academic degree. He did. He had a degree in English, but... Right, know, an advanced was, degree, and he's teaching, yeah. so people called him Professor Sayer. Yeah. So that, and so he asked the university there uh, in Butte if he could uh, teach a, like a short summer course because, ooh, if men are digging and mining, they might mm-hmm. come across stuff. So they mm-hmm. said yes. So he started to build this up, and then he got wind of that there were Depression-era funds mm-hmm. that he could tap into. And the first was the National Youth Administration that he tapped into where you could um, pay young people who were either going to stay at home or who needed um, summer jobs, who wanted to go to college, and put them to work in some way. And so he decided that he would hire them all to do archaeological fieldwork in southeastern Montana, where he was finding a lot of sites along the Yellowstone and different rivers there, the Muscle Shell, and had a lot of good interactions with collectors and with landowners. So he had this very kind of crazy ambitious plan, Crystal, of 22 counties. He was going to get these programs up and running and get students employed and then have local people like advocationalists who were just interested to kind of oversee. Um, That was really hard to manage, especially from Butte. Mm -hmm. So it didn't go too well. Mm -hmm. And just as that was kind of starting to fall apart was when he uh, fortuitously 
because he already had a name for himself, found out about um, deep deposits in Pictograph Cave. Mm -hmm. And that's a site we've talked about before, just south of Billings, that after a heavy spring rainstorm washed out a um, sort of a crevasse through deposits that revealed they went over 20 feet deep. Now, by then, he had met several collectors, and one of them was Oscar Lewis, who was much more than somebody who collected artifacts. He was taking notes. He was trying to piece things together. He was reading everything he could. He was a rancher that had homesteaded in the 1920s and settled um, the drought and the depression had um, forced him and his wife and daughter to move from their ranch south of Glendive into town so Mm -hmm. he could find relief work. And this then became fortuitous because Sayer tapping into uh, National Youth Administration and then Works Project Administration funds found in Oscar Lewis, Mm -hmm. somebody who lived there, who knew a lot, who yeah. knew a lot about that area and who knew a lot of people. And who knew a lot of about archaeology or, or about these artifacts and about Absolutely. these sites that they were coming across. And yeah. Lewis dropped out of school when he was 15 years old. Oh, wow. Now, he did qualify to be a teacher when he first came to Montana. He passed whatever exam you needed. So clearly a bright guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he... He, I guess, had been trying to get in or out of a girl's dorm when he was supposed to be <laughs> oh, in a seminary no. school. So he got, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, so his mom the was worried, shipped him chances. off, right, oh, no. shipped him off to an uncle in oh. Sisserton, um, South Dakota, near the Sioux Reservation. And he, um, that's where he really developed this incredible um, uh, reverence and interest in the Sioux tribe there and learned a lot of things. So though he was able to get a teaching certificate, he found out he could make more money uh, basically as a cowboy mm-hmm. and um, and shooting wolves so mm-hmm. that ranchers could have their cattle out there. So riding the range, he picked up a lot, found more sites, and then again read whatever he could. So he was just self-taught in every way. And then, you know, several decades older than Melville Sayer, who came okay. from a totally different background. Yeah, so he was he was 20 years older mm. or so than Sayer. Is mm-hmm. that right? That's about yeah. right, yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. so, so that was a pretty amazing way that they both had respect for each other, even yeah. though they were so different, managed to work together. So they forged the beginnings of excavations at Pictograph Cave, okay. um, also at the Hagen site and the site in Red Lodge, which were excavated under Sayer. Um, Sayer, though, ended up um, not being, continuing not to be a good manager mm-hmm. and having issues perhaps with alcohol and, mm-hmm. and other things that led him to be dismissed from the project directorship. Mm-hmm. Um, that left okay. Oscar Lewis sort of in charge from um, beginning of 1939 till almost the end of 1940. When the excavations wound down, but there was a lot of artifacts that had come out that he was trying to help organize and process. Mm -hmm. And it was then that the coalition of people that Sayer had brought together um, decided to apply for more money from the Works Project Administration to basically finish off excavations and properly get these artifacts so they could get into museums, generate tourism, write up reports, things like that. They had a vested interest because the Montana Department of Highways was involved and they wanted to create roadside stops. Yeah, for tourism. Exactly. Uh So, So they then were looking at new regulations from the Works Project Administration that required that you had some 
somebody with training. Mm. So that's where they started looking at graduate students. And William Malloy was at the University of Chicago working on a PhD in archaeology. He had had experience in Utah. He had worked on a WAPA project in Louisiana. He was in Chaco Canyon doing a field school as a teaching assistant when he was offered the job and he Mm -hmm. decided to accept it. And that was in um, 1940. And in October, he moved to Montana. Now, he was about 24 years old. And by this time, Oscar Lewis is 52. Oh boy, that must have been hard. Again, very different men, but you know, both got interested in archaeology in their teens on their own. Mm -hmm. And Bill Malloy would go out and collect and put together pots and do stuff before he went and got a degree. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he had very different means. And I think he recognized in Oscar Lewis, somebody who shared this incredible passion and somebody who took incredible notes and remembered a lot of things and someone who was willing to show him all these other sites and go exploring. So the two of them matched each other in Mm -hmm. energy and enthusiasm. And um, though their relationship later got complicated when you know, Malloy publishes and gets all the credit and Lewis never publishes. Um, but they, they managed to do an amazing amount of work together. Um, but none of that work would have happened without Melville Sayer. So Mm -hmm. three very different men, um, Mm -hmm. bringing archeology span to Montana and, and seeing it all the way through, because then after Lewis and Malloy, after world, world war two hits, all that work gets written up by Bill Malloy. It's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. I think that's rare for WPA archaeology um, that you had somebody involved in the project that was that diligent mm-hmm. to just get it all written up. That's he wonderful did that he did that. Yeah. That he that he soldiered through and just wrote all that up because they were looking at a lot of different sites. A lot of different sites. A lot of different sites. And Pictograph and Ghost Caves were a huge center of his dissertation, but really he included so many of the other ones that Oscar Lewis had um, showed him that he had found on his own reconnaissance around and that they had tested. Mm -hmm. And all of that became a new regional chronology for the Northern Plains. It basically, for the first time, wrote the Northern Plains into um, academic archaeology and explained that there was a deep history going mm-hmm. going back um, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 years and, and by then finding paleo points so we knew we were back as far as um, Clovis and Folsom sites also. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah. I love the inner interweaving of these three men's lives and it really took all three of them to make this archaeology happen in Montana, you know, because without a weird, unusual, but fascinating, yeah, kind of melting of all these different experiences and backgrounds. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Oscar Lewis, um, he's he's very interesting. And he was the one with a lot of the knowledge. I mean, the other two men had had knowledge, but I don't think either them had the deep knowledge that Oscar Lewis did. Do you? No, I really feel like Oscar Lewis knew where all the sites were, what things were interesting. And because he was always paying attention to what new was coming out about archaeology in the United States, he was able to understand what he was seeing on the ground in Montana and and try to fit that in. Mm. So he already had the terminology of what different types of paleo points were named, what they might mean, what to look for. And and he knew where everything was. So he was excited about looking for sites, showing them to people who had greater knowledge. He was um, 
he was recognized by Nels Nelson, who was then later a curator at the American Museum of Natural History, an archaeologist who came out to do some work on the Crow Reservation, had a permit to do that. But he mentions in a footnote the the most impressive collection and um, conversations he had were with Oscar T. Lewis, who was, quote-unquote, heading up the excavations at Pictograph Cave. So even Mm -hmm. though Oscar Lewis wasn't the the director, the head, he was the foreman on site. He was the one that people Day in and day out. And he could, whenever someone else came to town, he would tell them about different sites, show them his collection, and he saw his own collections as a way to share knowledge, not as a way to possess, own, and assure his reputation. I mean, I'm sure his reputation was important to him, but he saw it as a way to piece together knowledge about the past, and that was what you did. You built up um, your own collection, and then you shared it with people. Mm -hmm. So I think back then there was not a lot of acknowledgement about what was legal or illegal in terms of collecting. So Mm -hmm. laws up here were kind of unknown. We had a lot of federal land, um, but nobody was really thinking about what was considered federal property versus something that was uh, private property. If you're Mm -hmm. on someone's land, you asked them Mm -hmm. if you could collect, which he always did. But other than that, there there were no land managers out here and there were no archaeologists. Right, All you right. had was folks like Oscar Lewis and Charles Kinsey, who collected mm-hmm. at the Madison Buffalo Jump Site. And they knew each other oh, and also did. exchanged information. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it was kind of that idea of building information and building this chronology and building this knowledge of who lived here in the past. It seemed like with Oscar Lewis anyway, right. um, from what you've said. Right. Yeah. I think that, you know, he was doing this before there was anybody else, before there was any guidance. And then, you know, two gentlemen come in from the outside with degrees and he collaborates effectively with both of them and Mm -hmm. shares all this information. And Malloy and Sayer both constantly credit Oscar Lewis and uh, Malloy in every publication lists if this was a site that he found with or that Oscar mm-hmm. Lewis showed him. Mm-hmm. So really I think Lewis was foundational to getting a lot of archaeological information in front of people who had then academic credentials that could write it up. Mm-hmm. So Oscar was not somebody who was going to publish and mm-hmm. and I think he knew that the information might just be stuck in his brain mm-hmm. if he didn't get it out to somebody else. Right. Yeah. Right. You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. We are talking today about the history of archaeology in Montana. Oscar Lewis, you know, he's he's responsible for finding a lot of significant sites here in Montana that have become important to our understanding of how people lived here and when people moved into Montana. And one of those sites is called the Hagen site. He found it while surveying on Thomas Hagen's ranch. And I think it's interesting because he was just out surveying, walking, Mm -hmm. kind of in between jobs when he didn't, when, you know, he wasn't really under the auspices of anybody at the point, at that point. But, um, but he was, he, you know, he did right after work for the WPA. So then it kind of got, um, 
included in that program. But can you tell us about the Hagen site, why it is so important, and then Lewis's involvement in the excavation of the site? Yeah, so it's fascinating because it it seems that he met Sayer, um, according to some notes, some field journals that we have that he saved, and then um, left to his friend Joseph Kramer, who then wrote them up and donated them to the Museum of the Rockies. So we have this firsthand sort of journal, you know, account of notes he would take. And he did meet Sayer, he mentions that, talks about sites they visit together. And it seems that he started to maybe guide some of these National Youth Administration students out. And so one of the places they went out was to Thomas Hagen's ranch. And um, he talks about finding two sites in about two days, both of them very large areas of land that were covered with uh, stone tool debris, um, lithic artifacts, and also uh, pottery, pot shards. And then at one in particular, there's what looks to be um, the remains of an earth lodge and another, a very high circular mound five feet in diameter, about and four feet high. So where is this site? So this is this is just outside of Glendive, just Glendive, um, a few, Montana. Yeah, which is mm-hmm. um, towards the eastern border, borders on South Dakota. So you're way out in eastern Montana. And this, again, is an area where Lewis would have been familiar with him. He would have known Thomas Hagen. And the Yellowstone River runs right alongside this site. So it basically cuts a very steep bank right through probably the site. Maybe some of the site had even already um, eroded away into it. But he knows he's got something here that looks like um, a very substantial, more permanent site. There's structures. One of the the circular mound turns out to be um, a burial mound, and we do have the remains of an earth lodge. And then we have all sorts of these very deep bell-shaped pits, some of them four feet deep, um, some lined with plaster, filled in with debris. Um, And we know this because not only did they collect the surface, but they did perform some tests. So he did some work with the students. And then when they would be on these rotations and their time would be up, he would go out again, often taking his wife and his daughter, which he mentions in there, mm-hmm. and and sometimes other collectors who are interested, other avocational archaeologists, and they would all go out and dig, and he would write up what they found. And that's how we know there was um, a burial mound. He talks about the stratigraphy, talks about the different layers. There's charcoal, ash, or gravel that is constructed, and then it's mixed in with human remains that look to have been processed, weathered, maybe burned, um, things like that. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that a, a body was laid out and buried in there. And then um, that's about it. He digs out a couple of pits, finds bison scapula in there that were turned into hose. So this becomes... Like digging hose? Like digging garden, hose. gardening hose? Exactly. Okay. And bison scapula make very good, they're good shape for that. You yeah. attach them to a stick with some sinew. And, um, and we know historically and ethnographically we have eyewitness accounts this is what people use them for and gardened with and so we have this only site in montana that's evidence that agriculture or some sort of horticulture was happening now he finds only a squash seed you know he's not being all that careful to screen or do anything he's just trying to get a sense of what's there but they're finding a lot of pottery and ceramics and 
it definitely seems that this is a group of people who settled for quite a bit longer. They settled right on the banks of the Yellowstone River. And a lot of the pottery and the structure of the Earth Lodge looks a lot like what we see in the Dakotas among the Mandan and the Hidatsa people. So for a while, that's all we know until the the WPA funding comes through for Sayer. And they select not only Pictograph Cave because it's so amazing and close to buildings, but they also select the Hagen site as one of the sites, one of the three that they will excavate. So Lewis doesn't actually um, supervise on a daily basis the excavations there. That's done by um, Wally Phelan, I believe, or Ray Thompson. And they are there day to day. But he's the one who has found the site, has sort of laid the groundwork, and that becomes an incredibly important site in Montana. William Malloy, it's the first one he writes up in 1942, the first monograph published ever about archaeology in Montana. Wow. And um, he gets all of the information, not only from Oscar Lewis, but from the excavations the WPA does in 1938, and writes up um, an incredible study of the pottery, the decorations on it. He understands there's a link to the Mandan and Hadatsa sites, and they realize they probably have something that's a site dating to before there was a horse, where agriculture to some extent was happening, where people were settled and burying their dead, and that maybe, just maybe, this represents um, this period of when the ancestors of the Crow Indians who the Crow and Hadatsa both have oral histories, talking about when they were not separate, when they were one tribe, but one of them, um, the Crow, some of the Crow leave. There's various stories about various disputes and what it's over, certain cuts of bison and things like that. But um, leave these the villages along um, the Missouri, and they move back onto the plains, and they become nomadic bison hunting people, and they leave agricultural ways behind. And based on a lot of that information, that was speculation that maybe this is a site that represents um, something, some some part of that split that happened. Kind of that a, a site that shows that transition then. Right. A site that shows that splitting off and kind of the crow becoming the crow nation. Exactly. Yeah, so and that's it's, exciting. It's exciting, yeah. it's fascinating, and you had linguists involved looking mm-hmm. at trying to figure out how many shared words there are between Crow and Hadatsa, and could we go back with glottochronology and find a date? This is way before 1942, before we could date the site. Now we know it dates to A.D. 1400, between like about 1410 and 1480. Mm -hmm. We've been able to date samples, and we also know that some of the pits there had corn pollen in them. Okay. Less data, so later archaeologists went back. What those bell-shaped pits are. Amazing storage pits. And you see those all over Mandan village sites and Hadatsa sites, so they would have stacked them with corn and all Mm -hmm. sorts of other things. And then later, you know, they often fill them in with trash if they're Uh moving on or whatever. So, and then they, they dug out the, um, uh, the the house structure and it, it's laid out in a very similar way to a lot of Mandan earth lodges. It's just a little bit smaller. Um, but one thing you get at Hagen that you don't get a lot of other places 
including later crocytes, is you have a tremendous amount of fish bone. Mm-hmm. So you get a lot of yeah. bison by showing up in there, but you get a ton of fish bone. So whoever was living there was hunting um, some sort of uh, trout and other fish. The Yellowstone's right there. Yeah. So that's fascinating. Um, and the, four, the 1400s period could have been a time when this split might have happened. What was fascinating is that anthropologists at the time, sort of, they would call it devolution, like de-evolution. Mm. This going backwards mm. from being agriculturalists to hunter-gatherers, they didn't mm. think that societies did that, that this could have been a choice. And really, I mean, as we know, the Crow were incredibly successful, thriving tribe. And then there would be mm-hmm. ongoing trade with the Mandan and Hadatsa, you know, bison robes and bison products for corn and all sorts of things. And there would be regular trade and exchange at Mandan villages along the Missouri River and, and all of the tributaries. Um, so it, it put Montana on the map in a whole new way. And it yeah. continues to be one of only two or three sites in Montana where we have evidence that agriculture was practiced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a fascinating site. So um, I thought that was interesting that Oscar Lewis was involved. All three, three yeah, of these men were really involved yep, exactly. <laughs> in the Higgins site. But um, another site that these three men were involved in is Pictograph Cave, the site of Pictograph Cave, which is now Pictograph Cave State Park. And we have discussed this on numerous podcasts, but definitely the podcast we did with Sarah Scott back in February. Um, so Pictograph Cave State Park is located just outside of Billings, Montana. And the site contains three caves or alcoves. We've mentioned two of them, Pictograph Cave and then Ghost Cave. And the main alcove contains pictographs featuring over 100 images that date to about 2,000 years ago. The images represent animals, warrior, warriors, and there's even images of rifles. Like much more recent. Yeah, yeah more into recent. the 1700s. Yeah. 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 Um, and, of course, also Pictograph Cave um, doesn't just have pictographs and petroglyphs i don't know if there are petroglyphs in there but any pictographs but they also have deep deposits of artifacts Mm. so can you tell us just a little bit more about this site maybe some some things that sarah didn't mention and then um a little bit more about this excavation and the leadership of melville sayer and oscar lewis and you know when i think about them excavating this site with all these artifacts um you know I, it would be hard to manage a site like this one because Ugh, there were difficult. so many artifacts that came out. So I don't blame Melville Sayer for having a, a drink or two after <laughs> trying to figure out how to manage this site. <laughs> exactly. I think it was a little bit more than he bargained for, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. Um, I love the quote from Joseph Kramer, who knew Oscar Lewis, and, and he and Oscar would um, go out in the 1950s and, and camp and look for sites and do test excavations. And he always would say, Oscar said that when they found Pictograph Cave, uh, it, quote, had a scandalous amount of material. I just kind of love the way that sounds. And in this site, because it's a it's a dry enough rock shelter, boy, did it have amazing preservation. So we get arrow points still hafted with sinew to arrow shafts. We get tinder sticks. We get the, you know, things that people would have used to catch then a spark on fire. We get all kinds of basketry fragments and things preserved. So amazing. Aside from that, gaming pieces, 
pieces of shell that have been carved just with decoration. We get beads that are drilled, and these are these are sometimes made of stone, sometimes made of shell that has come all the way from the Pacific Ocean. Wow. We get mussel shell that's in various stages of being chipped into perfectly round discs, and you can see like it's almost as if someone didn't finish. Um, so an amazing amount of activity was happening. Um, and we did talk a, a lot about this with, with Sarah, and I'm always puzzled by this site for, for many reasons. But in, in terms of excavating it, it clearly was incredibly challenging because this eagle sandstone formation, the, the rock and the water that would be seeping through behind, you had a lots of gigantic boulders Mm -hmm. that had spalled off and you had a lot of accumulation of sandy deposits in the rock shelter. So as they're digging, you'd get some cultural layers, but you'd also have these massive boulders that had fallen Mm -hmm. in the way. You'd have wind and water that had moved things around, erosion filling it up. And then you had lots of animals that would den in there, pack rats that would burrow through and pull out things that they wanted to make nests and move them around. So this complex stratigraphy. I mean, can you imagine? And here you have Melville Sayre, who's an English professor all the way in Butte, only has time in the summer to come out. The WPA crews are digging all year round all through the winter, Um, even when sometimes the ground is so hard they can barely get through it. Oscar Lewis does make, he calls them his famous shaker screens. He later teaches other people through the Billings Archaeological Society how to make them. He actually talks at one point about getting um, finer mesh, one quarter inch mesh, because they don't want to miss some of the smaller beads. He had very sharp eyes, according to Walter Vanneman. He was always watching to see where something would come. So if these men were just shoveling, he would really be trying to get them to stop so he could write down where important things would come from. Mm -hmm. There were bison bones found in there. Mm -hmm. There were human remains found in there. So aside from, as you said, the pictographs, you you had things that they recorded that might have been um, sleeping mats, these mm-hmm. sort of prepared areas with grasses that were laid out almost like a mat to make a bed. You had evidences of fire in, in, um, to keep people warm near those sleeping mats. So, But the stratigraphy was a mess. It would have been difficult for even the best, most trained professional, but they were excavating in... 10 foot by 10 foot squares. Wow, that's huge. Right, you don't have a lot of control. Yeah. And they were going down, you know, a foot or more at a time, mm-hmm. just shoveling it out. Mm-hmm. So they were making a lot of progress, but then they'd have to stop and and use drills and picks mm-hmm. to break down huge boulders. Wow. Get them out. Yeah. So a lot of time they'd be stopped to do that. And, um, and it was incredibly difficult. And then they didn't leave... Um, we like to leave our stratigraphy in place when we dig a unit so we can draw profiles. We don't have a record that that was going on under Melville Sayer. Now, when Sayer left, we don't have any of his photographs or his notes or those things. We have some indication through later things said by Malloy that there were forms that were being filled out by Lewis and, and other members of the crew but and and Lewis was taking notes but if those forms went with Sayer or were sent to Butte 
I don't know if he took them with him. No one's been able to find those. Mm. Now, when Malloy came on, there are some more forms that are instituted again, and he does draw profiles. Um, so we have stratigraphy. He goes mm, back into okay. Pictograph Cave and other places and, and digs some areas fresh so he can get a real clean slice in and try to make sense of the chronology there yeah. from Oscar Lewis's notes and from that new cut made in to the site. Um, but there's a lot that has gone missing and been lost. I, I keep hoping someday Melville Sayers' yeah. stash of notes might pop up in some yeah. archive somewhere some, some attic someone will find them in some attic or some basement somewhere <laughs> right right but lewis was there day to day dealing with all the administrative paying people different crews as well as trying to sort out the complicated stratigraphy and i don't think um, melville sayer was much help i think he wanted to focus on the artifacts mm-hmm. and how they might be displayed in museum settings he was trying to start the museum of natural history for montana and had a big vision for that he was a he was a big big idea guy (laughs) it's good thing he had oscar he was a huge idea guy. yeah yeah so i want to know more about how these three men how their stories kind of played out and you've alluded a little bit to melville sayer but um how did their stories end? What was Lewis ever recognized for his work in the field of archaeology? And then I know I know William Malloy's story, and I want you to tell that as well because it's a really good one. But I, how you know, how did the, these? What happened with these three men, and right. where did their careers and professions take them throughout right. the end of their lives? So when Melville Sayer was dismissed um, from the WPA project in the beginning of 1939. Lewis writes in his journal that he was informed the end of January 1939. Um, uh, He sort of has come to think of himself as heading up the project. We know that isn't quite accurate, but he's still heading up excavations until they shut them down in April. Melville Sayer seems to finish out his last semester teaching at the Montana School of Mines in spring of 1939. He has divorced um, his wife and has remarried already, (laughs) another woman, and they leave Montana, and he takes some jobs. Um, He's always was a master at publicity, so when he would be driving around early on, 1933, 34, 35, and he would always send in information to the newspapers. He would sometimes write his own stories that got published in the newspapers. Journalists loved him, though. They'd always have a quote. He would send things to then the anthropology journals. He was one of the original people who signed the first um, founding documents of the Society for American Archaeology. He was there. He had given the keynote speech that night very exciting stuff that he was involved in so it was hard to imagine just several years later so he gave the keynote speech at the first meeting for for archaeology no not the first one but that basically the society for american archaeology was established within an hour like after he gave the keynote speech on archaeology to it's like the um, American Association for Advancement of Sciences. Like that is right. And so this was a spinoff, the SAA. Oh, wow. So that was, Mm. I mean, all these big names were there. And there's Melville Sayer, too. And his his name is is in those records. Mm. So he is there at the beginning of that. And then, you know, you can see this all becomes a very overwhelming project for him. And his personal life has also gotten complicated. So he and his second wife, Marjorie, um, 
leave Montana and this this side of him that was good at journalism and publicity he taps into and he works to write up news stories for radio stations in Idaho and in um, eastern Washington and then he be, he falls ill and Marjorie brings him back to Helena and he's admitted to a hospital and in January of 1941 he dies. Mm-hmm. So Melville Sayer within two years of getting dismissed from the project is dead. Mm. And so we, again, don't know if if there were documents that he had or information where that is. A lot of us have been looking mm-hmm. to no avail. But So in the meantime, Oscar Lewis has been maintaining the, this thread of the project, trying to keep track of all of the artifacts. Sayer had moved them to different labs. Lewis is trying to keep them back together, make some sense of them. He actually installs some exhibits in a roadside museum just outside of Billings. He's still working with the coalition of um, the Billings Commercial Club, the Montana Department of Transportation, all of these sort of political entities that had applied to the WPA. Um, And Montana School of Mines is completely out of the picture now. But when funds come back in and Malloy comes back in the picture... Lewis is reinstated as foreman. Field work begins again. And Malloy starts right away writing up the Hagen site and the Red Lodge stuff, writing up. He finds out Oscar Lewis has taken his own personal notes above and beyond all the other notes he was taking, and he is able to use those to make sense of all of the artifacts and the excavation that had gone on the previous three years wow, before he got there. Oscar's Lewis's notes. Yeah, and, and that he was willing to share them with Malloy and that Malloy could recognize and make sense of them. Um, the two of them work stuff out. They redraw profiles. And eventually that becomes part of the basis for Malloy's dissertation, which he, he finally does only after World War II, right? Mm-hmm. So this whole project ends in um, 1942, um, when they've finished excavating a pictograph in ghost caves, they've excavated the Billings bison trap, which has yet to be written up. That's oh, the only wow. one. That's the only wow. one. Um, and uh, that the Malloy's notes exist. I believe they're with someone um, in MAS who mm-hmm. has them. So hopefully that'll come out. But he gets drafted, and he ends up. He's very good with languages, and he ends up getting trained in Japanese. And he serves um, in that capacity, has a whole career. He gets married. He and his wife have kids, um, and then he finishes his PhD in 1953 after he's already been hired after the war ends, and he's already been hired at University of Wyoming. Mm-hmm. So he's teaching there, and he continues a long tradition of working with avocationals, just like Oscar Lewis, mm-hmm. George Frizen being mm-hmm. the most famous, oh, yeah. Yeah. who himself goes on to be a huge name in Plains archaeology. Mm-hmm. But by that point, um, uh, Malloy has been invited to go on to some other projects, and he is asked to go along to a project on Easter Island. And he falls in love with the archaeology and the people there in particular. And... Um, he is so beloved that even today his name is so well known. There's a whole repository there. I believe his ashes are there. Oh, wow. So his daughter, Bridget, who is working on a biography of her dad, um, has shared some amazing stories with me about their experiences as a family in Easter Island, 
how well he's thought of there and remembered because he took such an interest in the lives of the living people and their histories, not just going in to do science and archaeology and leaving to build his career back in the United States. He really um, became an integral part of their community and livelihood and and worked with uh, the folks on Easter Island. So hmm. that is... Um, a huge part of just tells you who Bill Malloy was as a person. I think he had amazing relationships and he was incredibly humble. He wrote lovely um, letter to Billings Archaeological Society when Oscar Lewis passed in 1963. So Oscar Lewis was the only one who stayed in Montana mm-hmm. and he just continued to find work, um, found uh, himself a way to buy another ranch in Shepherd. Um, just outside of Billings, always made an incredibly modest living and became very good friends with Joseph Kramer, who was a a geologist for an oil company, who helped him out in many ways in return for Lewis's willingness to share um, all his knowledge about Montana archaeology. And so Kramer became sort of this benefactor who saved all of Lewis's information, his stories, his notes, his photographs, his artifacts, Mm. lovingly, I think, compiled them into an amazing ledger, um, organized them, labeled them, and donated them all to the Museum of the Rockies. So we have a record of Lewis and his contributions only because of that relationship between Kramer and Lewis, and in part the relationship between um, Lewis and Malloy, and Malloy's willingness to... Uh, speak about who Lewis was as a man when mm-hmm. when he met him, you know, realizing later, gosh, thinking of his 20-year-old self, you know, meeting yeah. Lewis and what that was like. So it's it's fun to read um, those insights he had himself as, a, as an older man looking back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you had a chance to meet Joseph Kramer before he died, didn't you? Yes. Yeah, I got to interview mm-hmm. him. Yeah. And that, him and his wife, that was a wonderful experience. And um, really got a sense that he didn't want Oscar Lewis's contributions to Montana archaeology to be lost. And he's one of several people who knew Oscar Lewis, who credits him with being kind of a grandfather of Montana archaeology, mm-hmm. sort of this founding father who, though he himself um, wasn't educated in a way that allowed him to publish, was the person who galvanized um the work, you know, helped Sayer, but then mm-hmm. also was the thread that kept yeah, it going right. so that someone like Malloy could get all of that stuff published. Right. Yeah. You know, that movie that just came out recently. <gasps> yes. Um, what was the, what's the name of it? Is it just The Dig? The Dig. Yeah. The Dig. I, when I was watching that, I was thinking, you know, the main character yes. reminds me so much of Oscar Lewis. And he keeps being sort of a, yeah. a little disparaged by the yeah. local museum and things like that, but he's such a good expert, and he has such mm-hmm. a good sense in the field of, of yes. how to do something and where it is. And is and, really an expert with soils, with, you know, just like Oscar Lewis would have been. I totally imagine it. And unfortunately, Oscar Lewis's reputation has has suffered in Mm -hmm. more recent years because he did collect during his lifetime. Um, I think he's been labeled by some as a pot hunter. Mm -hmm. And um, everything that I've read about him, everyone who knew him 
at, during his lifetime and at the time really saw him as somebody who would never never take anything from an official project, but who would also generously share and give something away um, to anybody who was interested in, in working on something. But also he seemed very careful in where he selected sites. When I've gone back through Kramer's list of all of his sites that he visited and collected from, I had a, a student, Emily Askey, compile a lot of the land designation information the majority of it is private land mm-hmm. or railroad land. Very little of it is from any public lands. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even with Malloy and everyone involved, I think I think it was a different time in archaeology. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that Lewis just continued to what he would call work sites and, and, and take notes on them, that was just what you did in the 1920s and 1930s mm-hmm. when he was doing it and no one else was. Mm-hmm. And he continued that through his life. And fortunately, we have his information now in a repository where other people can use it. Right, right. So he did leave that legacy um, for others to learn from. And then, you know, um, and did work with Malloy to write up so many reports which was great. Malloy was really amazing. He's yeah. truly truly somebody who um I think felt that it was a duty and obligation to to get the work out. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you Nancy for all your information and insight into this history of early archaeology in Montana. Um, can you tell us more about the book that you've re- recently written the ch- chapter for and then I don't know if you know when it'll be published, but if you can give us a little bit more insight into that. Yeah, so um, so my uh, uh, chapter is one of about nine or ten that are covering works project administration or um, National Youth Administration or Civilian Conservation Corps, all these New Deal projects in the West that um, occurred in states such as Colorado, Wyoming, New Mexico, Texas, Arizona, and Utah. Now, there were others in Nevada and California, but this book covers those others. And we um, are contributing to sort of an ongoing interest in in how WPA archaeology, New Deal archaeology, um, was pivotal in some ways in terms of the history of American archaeology. And um, from my perspective, it was very impactful in the West, particularly for the Northern Plains, because it really brought archaeology and an understanding of the deep history of the Plains out to other academics. Um, but it does touch on that legacy, that contra- controversy and sort of uncomfortableness between amateurs and academics that persists, mm-hmm. actually. Still so, today. Yeah. Right, right. So the book, um, Bernard Means does a conclusion. Kelly Poole is the main person I've been dealing with to organize it, and she works for Metcalf Archaeology mm-hmm. in Colorado. And um, there's been amazing contributions by archaeologists who work in all of those other states. And so we think, I think that's coming out in the fall, University of Utah Press. Um, and I don't know the title of the book, but um, maybe there isn't one be, yet. There, but... <laughs> maybe we'll be able to put that up on the link. We when will. This gets up. We, we yeah. will. We will. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much, Nancy, and thanks to everyone out there for joining us today. And we hope you can join us again to find out more about the, the dirt, dirt on, on the, the past. past. We would like to thank our editor, Steve Durbin, and our social media maven, Maggie Mulcahy. If you're enjoying The Dirt on the Past, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. 
Also, please tell your friends and leave us a review. It really helps people find us. We are a new podcast and we're trying to grow our listener base. So please share. Thanks. And thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past.